Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is John Kiriakou, and I'm here in the studio with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Boy, there's a lot to say today. And you know what I like about the show today? What? I like the fact that a lot of what we're going to talk about isn't really at the top of the news, Mm -hmm. but it's important stuff. Of course, we're going to talk about the... January 6th committee hearing last night, and there's a new deal between the Russians and the Ukrainians, kind of, sort of, but not really, to uh, ship the grain out. It's been signed Mm -hmm. already. There's a lot going on, but a lot of it you have to look for in the news. Yeah. And that's kind of fun. It's always fun. I'd have to also preview, a little later in this hour, we're going to talk about a bunch of news out of Latin America. Man... Uh, the head of Southcom, right, General Linda Linda Richardson, yeah. I believe is her name. She cannot stop talking about the subsoil wealth of Central America and South America. It is it is starting to get very concerning. She needs to stop talking about. You can't say resources, uh, meddlesome adversaries, and national security together uh, in that sentence. You know, you yeah. can't put those all together without ringing some alarm bells. So we're going to talk about that, and also had some incredibly funny things to say about Colombia and its military. Oh, no. I'm not going to say any more about it because it is like, it is comic how divorced from reality her, her take on Colombia's great military uh, is. Oh. So very excited about that. You pointed out some um, things in the news today that I had actually missed. I didn't realize that another Guantanamo prisoner had been cleared for release. Oh, yeah. This uh, this guy, Khaled Ahmed Kasim, mm-hmm. Kasim, uh-huh, Kasim. Uh, he's been... Cleared for release from detention in Cuba after 20 years, 20, 20 years, years without a trial. Uh, he is a Yemeni national. He was taken into custody in December 2001. He was transferred to Guantanamo in 2002. Mm-hmm. Uh, his lawyers, uh, writing in a press release in reprieve, say that he was tortured during his time in U.S. custody, uh, forced to sleep standing up causing sleep deprivation, subjected to freezing temperatures, kept in a fenced area, kept shackled so he couldn't walk. So they describe his treatment over these 20 years, again, detained without a trial, Mm -hmm. without being charged. And I found a Guardian story from seven years ago Mm -hmm. that was reporting on the the process of clearing some of these detainees. Uh, And it said that the Pentagon said Kasim might have fought for the Taliban in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. might have fought for Which the Taliban. Which is not illegal. Right. And is suspected of joining Al-Qaeda. Mm-hmm. So. Zero proof. Good enough, I guess, right? Good enough to lock this guy up for, yeah. tw- he's like 40 years old. He was locked up when he was 20. I, I'm pretty sure if, mm-hmm. if that timeline isn't exact, it's off by like a year. Well, no, but um, there's, there's more than that. He's been in Guantanamo for 20. He was actually captured the previous December mm-hmm. of 2001. That's before I even made it to Pakistan. Yeah. This guy was already in custody before I made it to Pakistan. So, yeah, he was probably 19 or so. So might have this. Right. Suspected of that. And then uh, to sort of justify what they've done, the Pentagon said that while being held, Kasim had regularly communicated with relatives who are involved in or sympathetic to extremism. 
They include a brother who was implicated in the 2000 attack on the USS Cole off Yemen. Uh, So, which is also right. Like better not communicate with your uncle who hates the United States while you are being detained indefinitely by the United States. Oh, his brother was implicated in this attack. I mean, it's all so fuzzy. And in the meantime, this is a person who has you know, has been incarcerated for 20 years. Never charged with a crime. And we just, again, like, we go around the world Mm -hmm. presenting ourselves as the defenders of liberty and democracy. Yes. And you just can't, you can't, you can't make these two things uh, sit in harmony, right? The the continued operation of Guantanamo and our our practices there and these ideals that we are supposedly fighting for around the world. Some kind of of uh, policy this is, you know, uh, where they said that he had been in touch with with uh, relatives who who may have been sympathetic to extremism, but that is such BS Mm -hmm. because you have any idea how tightly controlled communication is with the outside. Mm -hmm. It'll take six months to receive a letter from a family member and half of it is redacted. Yeah. So it's not like he's just slipping secrets to his relatives and they're slipping secrets about extremism back to him. That's just not how it works. Also, what's this guy supposed to do? Exactly. If these are the people he knows and he's able to write to. And what again, is this, this guy is supposed a, this to is do? Assuming that any of this is true. And also, I mean, I swear to God, after after how many years of war? Yeah. Find me. A, find me somebody in Yemen who wouldn't be. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, who, who wouldn't have had their sort of uh, political inclinations or desires right. shaped by that. Right. I that mean, is right. If you want to make it, a, a, I don't know, if you want to condemn people for writing to people who think that the U.S. is, a, you know, a dangerous force in their region and perhaps one to be resisted by any means necessary, I would suggest we stop blowing up people's funerals and weddings. Yeah. If you if you want to, you know, eradicate that terrible scourge, right. which we've done. Yeah. Right. I mean, uh, just everything about this is outrageous. I need to make a note, too. I am uh, receiving text messages from some of our regular uh, viewers on Rumble. There seems to be some sort of a technical problem on Rumble, and the Mm. video is not uh, streaming, but we are going to do what little we can. Rest assured, guys, we look great. We do. We look great. And as soon as you can see us again, it's going to be the same treat as it is every day. I'm wearing a black polo t-shirt which makes me look slightly less fat than i normally do on a regular day no far less fat john don't sell yourself short i want to add one thing about this poor guy cousin mm-hmm. um he's been cleared for release from guantanamo that for years mean, now right yeah and that doesn't mean he's being released yeah yeah exactly because now it could take another 10 years to find a country willing to take him. Yes. You can't send him back to Yemen because Yemen's a failed state. Yeah. Right. And Al Qaeda's in Yemen and all these terrorist groups are in Yemen. Mm-hmm. So you can't send him back to Yemen. Well, no other country's going to want this guy. He's apparently been learning Spanish uh, in detention because he's hoping to Good. be sent to Latin American country. Well, I spoke to Mohammed Udslahi mm-hmm. a couple of days ago. I guess it was over the weekend. Mohammed spent 17 years in Guantanamo. He was tortured mercilessly. Mm-hmm. He was innocent of any crime and finally released. And he called me from Amsterdam. He's finally found a country willing to take him. 
And so he had been in limbo in Mauritania for a long time. Now he's proud to say that he's uh, in the process of becoming a Dutch citizen. There were so places to land. Yeah, there, yeah, there's hope out there. But remember, guys, they hate us for our freedom. That's why. Not because of the years of torture and, uh, you know, d- detention. With I, I told you my mom said to me one time in, in 2002, they hate us for our freedom. And I was like, Mom. Don't listen to George W. Bush. Yeah. Don't let your moms listen to George W. Bush. Yeah. And then we had to have a long conversation about why they actually hate us. Let me tell you my favorite headline of the day. This is, this is in the sun. Oh, this Double dose. Guy. California man reveals he had COVID and monkeypox at the same time. This same time is in all caps. It's just like, why is this a news story? <laughs> There's no reason. These are two different viruses. There's no reason to think... That you couldn't get both of these at the same sure. time. I have not heard any anything indicating that the, the two should, you know, like mutually exclude each other. Hilarious to me that the sun decides to put this out as a as a serious headline. What a rag the sun is. It's, yeah. It's I mean, poor incredible. guy. Sounds like a bummer. Wish him a speedy recovery. I don't know if you needed the all caps there. Um, there was also some news from the Supreme Court that's worth mentioning, yeah. John. Yesterday, the court denied the Biden administration's request to reinstate its immigration enforcement priorities, but it agreed to hear the case in December. And so what had happened was Biden's Department of Homeland Security had issued guidelines saying ICE should prioritize arresting and deporting undocumented immigrants who presented threats to national security, border security or mm-hmm. public safety. Mm-hmm. Right. So this is rolling back. Trump's broadening of of ISIS scope to say, hey, go after anybody. And of course, what Trump had done was to expand after both George W. Bush and uh, Obama had said, hey, look, we don't you don't need to that you don't waste your resources just trying to find literally anyone who is here who's undocumented. Don't bother, you know, don't bother going after mm-hmm. like 18 year olds who have a, a shoplifting conviction, right, you know, like who right. cares? Uh, these these are not the people who are represent a danger to our society. That's right. Um, and I'll add, this was the first uh, decision in which Justice Ketanji uh, Brown Jackson was involved. Yes, and uh, it was she, a five four uh, decision. She sided she with the center. Yeah, sided with the liberals, as did Amy Coney Barrett. Right to say they would have granted the stay, but mm-hmm. they were overruled. Uh, and so, yes, when Biden tried to do this, tried to narrow ICE's scope, although of course still leaving a lot of discretion to individual officers. Uh, The administration was sued by Texas and Louisiana, who said it was letting immigrants with criminal records stay free while their deportation cases move forward. And a Politico story on this said that it won't actually affect how ICE operates, partly because the agency doesn't have the capacity to detain all migrants with criminal convictions. But the thing is, we know it's very clear how much discretion individual agents have. Right. right? And they retained this discretion even under Joe Biden's guidance. Uh, They really do have a lot of leeway to target whoever they want and and they can find ways to justify it. So, you know, this is a blow to anyone who would like to see our immigration policies, you know, reflect some kind of humanity and some kind of sense. And also a blow to, you know, what efforts the administration has made to change our immigration policies, which, you know, exist, right? They have made some effort, although it has been uh, pretty disappointing and pretty fiercely challenged by these two conservative states. Yeah. Yeah. This is this is just one part of a very long fight. This is going to be a long and difficult fight. And there's not going to be any agreement between the Democrats and the Republicans on this issue. 
Hey, there was an article in the Washington Post today that made my hair stand up. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wanted to talk about it. And I've been thinking about it a lot of this morning. And I think the best way to do this is to just read a couple of passages from the Washington Post article. It says here, a police chief in Mississippi was fired on Wednesday after a leaked recording showed that the official had bragged about killing 13 people in the line of duty, and he used the N-word repeatedly, including to describe one black person that he says he shot 119 times. The racist, homophobic, and expletive-laden remarks that Sheriff Sam Dobbins, sorry, Chief Sam Dobbins, chief of the small town of Lexington, Mississippi, made during an April conversation with an officer caused an uproar this week in the Mississippi Delta community. It was a 16-minute conversation. It was surreptitiously recorded by another police officer who happens to be black, and this police chief is using the N-word in conversation with the black police police officer. Right. So, 16-minute conversation. The Washington Post obtained a copy of the of the tape and he's boasting about the 13 people all men that he killed in the line of duty he says i've killed 13 men in my career justified in my line of duty i've shot and killed 13 different people bro bro uh, yeah while describing an alleged shootout in a cornfield dobbins claimed to hooker that he quote saved 67 kids in a school by shooting a black man more than 100 times. I shot that N-word 119 times, okay? Uh, he was DRT, dead right there. It's, it's unclear what case he's referencing, but he went on to say, I shot the vehicle 319 times, but I hit him 119 times all by me. Yeah. So it, it turns out that there was a guy in... Um, uh, a nearby town 10 years ago who was shot 119 times. Uh, there was an investigation. Well, as much of an investigation as a 1200 person town in Mississippi sure. is going to do for a dead black man. And uh, it was found to be a justifiable shooting. Right. So the guy resigned on, on Wednesday. He's, he's made no apologies um, he denies using the N-word and they said, well, it's on the tape and we all listen to the tape and you say it all through the whole conversation. Right, right. And he's like, yeah, I deny that. That's just not me, he says. That's okay, just not me. Okay, okay. Yeah. It's just, again, it's hard to stick with this uh, couple bad apples wow. idea. It is. When again, the, this, is the, this is the person who is the chief of police. That's right. right. He's the chief sure, of police. Sure, bad apples exist, but like these are the people who are rising, uh, who are rising up the ranks. Yeah, right? absolutely. These and are the people who are controlled. This is the person who's supposed to be controlling the cops in a small town. Yeah, That's terrifying. Exactly. This is a this is a, a police uh, department with fewer than ten officers. Mm. And one thing I didn't know is um, agencies with fewer than ten officers make up half of the nation's twelve thousand two hundred local police departments. Yeah. 1,050 people have been killed by the police this year. This year. Yeah. 1,050 people. Um, and it says half of those people were white. Blacks are shot at a disproportionately high rate. They account for less than 13% of the U.S. population and are killed at twice the rate of whites. And Hispanics are killed 
at an equally high rate, Mm -hmm. twice the rate of whites. Mm -hmm. My God, the problems we have in this country. Mm -hmm. This is the Wild West. It really is. And and how fast do you think he would have been to run into that uh, classroom in Uvalde? Oh, yeah. He'd be sitting in his car because it's air conditioned. It's a lot more fun when they're unarmed, John. This I'll is say. what this is what I have to conclude from, uh, from a lot of this. The, you know, an important thing about this article is nowhere does it mention that this man's actions or claims or boasts will be investigated. There's no, no talk about any kind of charges or inquiries or nothing. Only that he was forced to resign. Mm-hmm. That's it. I mean, the good thing is that Biden uh, wants, what, $40 billion more for uh, for fighting crime and, and hiring yeah, more police. That's what Th- we need. That'll solve it. That is, yeah. <sighs> I was talking last night with somebody about, uh, you know, policy analysis and looking at looking at the results of policies and being able to sort of talk, you know, is it, is it we're talking about sort of what political what sort of political areas are actually fun, fun and satisfying to talk about and which aren't. And he was talking about this. And of course it always makes me think about how we, how we treat crime. Right. Yeah. And we, we can see that the way we police there, there are studies showing, right. The, the, our policing system is nothing to prevent crime, right. It doesn't lower crime rates. It's purely punitive. That's it. And yet it's presented to us as the solution to crime. And Mm -hmm. it's not, it absolutely isn't. And yet this is the only thing that we are allowed to envision mm-hmm. as a response to the reality of crime is this style of policing by these kinds of people. Yes. And if you look at the national trend, it is in that direction where, you know, it's cyclical, yeah. of course. And the cycle that we're in now is that we need to get tough on crime again mm-hmm. because there have been a handful of stories, especially from New York, Los Angeles, maybe San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, where people had committed a crime or had been accused of committing crime. Uh, the, these are no bail districts now. They were released quickly and then they committed a more serious crime. Mm-hmm. And so now we need to clamp down on everybody. Which, of course, is not going to prevent crime. It's not going to. Pre- it never I mean, does. Yeah, it never has. It'd be cool if we could try something that might have a chance of uh, preventing crime. Yeah, but instead. Like, like education and job training. But yep. nobody wants to talk about that. Just awful. Well, we've got a full show with a whole bunch of really great guests. So stay tuned. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take a short break and come back with the excellent Mark Sloboda. Stay tuned. Fits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. A United Nations brokered deal between Russia and Ukraine was signed in Turkey today to allow exports of grain from blockaded uh, Ukrainian ports. An estimated 22 million tons of grain have been stuck in these ports. The agreement will ease what has been stacking up to be a major global food shortage. Richard Moore, the head of Britain's MI6 spy agency, said yesterday that the Russian military will, quote, run out of steam, unquote, in Ukraine in the next several weeks because of shortages of both personnel and materiel. 
He said the Russians will have to pause in order to resupply, which will give the Ukrainians the time and opportunity to go on the offensive. Both the Russians and the Israelis bombed Syria this morning, killing at least 10 people. The Israelis targeted what appeared to be a small base used by Iranian personnel. The Russian strike, which was in the rebel stronghold of Idlib, may have been a mistake, as it appears to have killed all civilians, including four children. And finally, Italy's government collapsed yesterday after Prime Minister Mario Draghi failed to survive a no-confidence vote. Draghi is known as Super Mario because he is credited with saving the euro during the 2008-2009 financial crisis, but this time it was inflation that did him in. The five-party coalition that he leads simply didn't believe he could adequately tame the beast. Italy has had five different prime ministers in the last eight years, and that's not unusual since the end of the Second World War. We're joined by Mark Sloboda. He's an international affairs and security analyst. And welcome back, Mark. John, Michelle, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on Political Misfits. Well, I'm glad you're here. Thanks for helping us out. And let's begin with this deal to sell Ukrainian grain. This is a strange agreement, it seems to me, because it's actually two separate agreements. The Ukrainians have signed a deal with the Turks, brokered by the UN, and then the Russians signed an identical deal with the Turks. The Ukrainians insisted that they would not put their signatures on any agreement that had Russian signatures on it. But what matters is that the grain will finally head to market. So first, what are your thoughts on this development? You've talked about this a lot. How long will it take for the grain to reach its destinations? And will it really head off what has been predicted to be a major famine? Okay, so uh, first of all, don't expect the grain... Uh, to be arriving at its destinations anytime soon. Right. I mean, uh, at least not, we're, we're not looking at days, we're looking at a, a more than a week, weeks, because the principal obstruction is still there. Namely, right. the Kiev regime mined their own ports, including mining in dozens of foreign ships filled with grain. That cannot leave. And those mines are still there. And according to the agreement, the Kiev regime or an unidentified non-NATO third party, uh, that's from some of the leaked details, is going to partially demine, uh, uh, allowing a, I guess, a transit passage uh, that will Ukrainian Navy and Coast Guard, the handful of ships that remain to them, will be escorting these mm. ships through. What could go wrong? Partially <laughs> right. uh, on the field. I'm, I mean, um, you know, I, I fully expect to see uh, a ship run afoul of a mine and then the Kiev regime blaming Russia as attacking grain ships. I mean, this could go all kinds of crazy wrong mm -hmm. places. Mm -hmm. um, but, um, you know, Kiev regime, the West, keeps talking about a Russian blockade. There is no Russian blockade of grain ships. There is a blockade of the Kiev regime's military uh, remaining uh, and naval assets and so on. But they have made clear for, for months now they, they would be happy to, to, have, to negotiate humanitarian transit corridors to get grain out uh, because, you know, uh, they are uh, concerned, uh, you know, both uh, seriously and from a PR perspective, uh, you know, uh, for the grain to get to its shipments, most of which are due to Africa. Now, this is not going to alleviate the grain crisis uh, by itself, mm -hmm. because 
actually, Ukraine is only the fifth biggest producer of grain in the world. The number one is Russia. Right, <laughs> right. And um, Russia is obstructed from getting their grain to market because of Western sanctions, grain and fertilizer. Now, it is true that there is no direct sanctions on um, grain, you know, the export of food and, and fertilizer itself. And, mm -hmm. and Western, you know, governments are quick to point this out. However, that hardly matters when you've uh, sanctioned Russia's uh, governments and uh, companies and banks' ability to conduct financial transactions, uh, the, the ability to use SWIFT, the ability uh, to use payment systems, the ability to get insurance, uh, the, the ability to dock in ports. All of these things are obstructing Russia from getting its much larger uh, uh, share of the global uh, food market to market. Um, and in the hours before this deal was signed, the EU announced that they were going to partially alleviate some of the sanctions on Russian banks uh, to help facilitate the transfer of grain and fertilizer. Mm -hmm. And I think that this was definitely part of the deal. This, this was something that is, is not being discussed but uh, this is something that, that Russia, I'm sure, insisted. And I'm glad that they did because it will help alleviate a food crisis, but the food crisis that is primarily a making of Western sanctions on yeah, Russia. Yeah, that, that's right. And that's really not discussed in the Western media. Hey, I was surprised to see these comments yesterday from uh, Sir Richard Moore, the head of MI6. Even the identity of the head of MI6 it used to be a closely guarded secret. When I was at the CIA, I actually met the head of MI6 once. We, we did this operation together and he took us out to this men's club to celebrate, but we weren't even allowed to know his name. He was only called M. Uh, everybody was like, oh, I got to meet M. Oh my God, mm -hmm. I would love to meet M. We never knew the guy's name. Now we have an MI6 director giving press interviews. What do you make of this statement that the Russians will soon run out of steam? As soon as I heard these words, I thought of you. Even if the Russians do yeah. run out of steam, do the Ukrainians have enough of their own steam to be able to go on the offensive? I mean, MI6, uh, speaking about the Russian crisis, has become kind of a, a poster child for the type of, of sheer propaganda. Yeah on behalf of the Kiev regime, which I find embarrassing from an analyst perspective, right? Um, it, it, you would think that the head of the Britain's premier foreign in, intelligence uh, agency would want to remain some shed of credibility. Yeah. I mean, how long have we been predicting that the, the Russia would run out of steam? I mean, since the uh, beginning of, of the war. Yeah, run out of steam run out of precision missiles, run out of artillery shells, run out of food, right. run out of um, tanks, run out of men, run, I, I, you name it. Russia has run out of it, according to one Western official or another. Mm -hmm. And yet things are still going on. And all of those things seem to magically appear somehow. Uh, so I wouldn't, put any credibility on this whatsoever. And you're certainly right that, I mean, the, the Russian military intervention force is small. It has always been small. It is mm -hmm. less than 
hundred thousand, and that's including right. the forty or fifty thousand Ukrainian, you know, ex-Ukrainians of the Donbas and Lugansk republics. Right. And you know, against all the conventions about the size that an attacking force should be, they are still beating these heavily. Uh, built up fortifications over eight years with a NATO trained and equipped army, uh, you know, with this small force. But um, all indications are that they're still able to um, rest, recycle um, uh, units from from the, the front, uh, uh, bring them back, resupply as operations are going forward. Now, there has been an operational pause uh, since uh, um, Severodonetsk and Liskychans were liberated uh, just over a couple of weeks ago. But at the same time, that is not like the end. That's just a slight slowdown because the Russian forces are still making advancements, encirclements, um, continuing the uh, artillery softening of mm-hmm. the next defensive line at uh, Seversk, uh, uh, Solodar, Bakhmut, and as well as at Slavyansk, and making uh, some gains out side of Kharkov and uh, also dealing uh, some some severe damage uh, to uh, Kiev regime forces uh, outside of Kherson per, uh, uh, region as well. So, uh, I mean, that's during an operational pause. The operational yeah. pause is expected to expire. And then there will be a new burst of activity. And once again, you will hear people say, well, after this city is is taken, well, that then Russia <laughs> military will run out of steam. Uh, the Russian military is not going to run out of steam. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to say, they're only using 10 to 20% of their military right now. They I haven't was, even called up reserves. My There's next question. 2 million reserves before even they would have to go to something like a draft. The Kiev regime, meanwhile, has conscripted every male in the country between the ages of 16 and 60, and no small number of the women as well. They are completely, by their own admission, out of artillery shells out of ammunition and they're surviving simply on western supplies which are only a trickle of what they started the war with they have not only run out of steam they have actually run out of everything else Mm -hmm. and the casualty numbers that are tossed around are truly they're horrific they're brutal um and they continue to throw um civilians uh in from the territorial defense, which are from according to Western mercenaries who have returned, American mercenaries, they say that they are given two to three days of training <laughs> with wow. a gun and being shoved into the front. And they don't even have enough AK 47s for everyone. There's five people uh, from one uh, area, they have um, uh, between five people, they have two operating AK 47s, and they're supposed to stop. Uh, uh, an opponent that is is uh, you know basically not even making contact with them. They're just using heavy artillery and multiple launch rocket system barrages as well as airstrikes, and then only moving up when everything is eradicated, or or at least not moving. Uh, so it's it's sad. Yeah, it's brutal, and it it needs to be ended. Uh, you would think that the regime would want to save the lives of its people, and like I said, these are forced conscripts at this point. Right. This is what has filled the gaps of the Ukrainian regular military units that even the Washington Post and other Western have admitted mm-hmm. have suffered by their own account. Seventy to 80 percent attrition. My God. Seventy. 80%. You go into battle with 10 men and seven or eight of them are dead. 
Unbelievable. You mentioned something a moment ago that I want to uh, follow up on. Another another thing that Moore said, the head of MI6, was that the Russians are almost out of surface-to-surface missiles, and so they're using surface-to-air missiles against Ukrainian buildings. But those warheads aren't large enough to do major damage. But that's not what we see on the news. What what we see from the Ukrainians, by the way, is, oh, my God, look what the Russians did to this building. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, what's the this is, what's the this, truth here? This is this is nonsense. This is nonsense. We have seen, uh, first of all, the idea that Russia is out of surface to surface missiles, like for multiple launch rocket systems, even precision guided missiles. Yeah. Right. Uh, the estimates that the, the CIA put out this week that Russia has used somewhere between 50 and 60 percent of its stockpiles. Now, of course, Russia, unlike Ukraine, whose entire military industrial complex has been destroyed, has the ability to produce more. Right. But 50 to 60 percent is not out of. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, but then we're talking. Let's move down the line to just. Uh, you know, the type of rockets that are fired from multiple launch rocket systems, Russia's equivalent of the HIMARS and everything. You know, there was a Ukrainian general who commented on the, the comparison of the supplies of artillery uh, and these rocket type systems uh, and, uh, you know, compared to what Ukraine had and compared to what Russia has. And yeah. what he said that Russia's Soviet stockpiles were effectively infinite. Oh. Russia could maintain this scale of war, firing 50 to 60,000 artillery shells a day, and an equivalent amount of, of rockets from these multiple launch rocket systems for the next five years. Wow. Okay. Okay. That actually there's an excellent puts it into article in Rusi. Yeah, there's an excellent article in Rusi. Uh, called the return of military, uh, the, uh, the return of industrial warfare, um, that highlights how Russia is entirely militarily, industrially geared to fight the type of war that they're fighting, and that the West is not. Not only can Ukraine not, but the West cannot, because even the Kiev regime, outnumbered ten to one, is firing five to six thousand artillery shells a day, and the West simply does not have the artillery shells or the military industrial complex in place uh, to to rebuild that, because that's not what they've been concentrating on for the last several decades. They've been concentrating on high-end systems, air power, and taking out counterinsurgency around the world. They're not ready for this type of war. They're not capable of supplying Ukraine for long periods of time, for months or years into the future. Right now, I mean, the Kiev regime is surviving on monthly shipments um, and and not having enough artillery shells to to man even the the several dozen artillery pieces, the M777s and so forth, that they're getting from the West, which are just a fraction of their own equivalents of what they started the war with. This is a hopeless situation, and simply a regime that cares about its own people and cities would seek political terms now while they still can, and the terms are just getting worse. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. I want to ask you about um, uh, this Syria situation this morning. I mentioned in the intro that both the Russians and the Israelis had bombed Syria this morning. The Israeli press hasn't even mentioned it, which is normal for them. Uh, The Israeli strike, according to the BBC, was against a small Iranian installation 
near the Golan Heights. It killed three people. They're probably all Iranians. The Russian strike was in Idlib, which is, of course, the ISIS-controlled or at least partially controlled um, area of the country. And seven people were killed. These Western media reports are saying the dead are four children and three adults and that all of them were civilians. Now, you go back to see where this report came from and the ultimate originator of it white is helmets. Wh- white helmets. Exactly. Yeah, white helmets. White, yeah. The white helmets. So, so, the, so the, uh, the, what, what's the, what's the story here? Okay. So first of all, notice that Russian airstrikes are conducted with the permission of the Syrian government in Damascus. Important point. Well, Israel, yes. Israel is attacking Iranians, a country they're not officially at war with in Syria, a mm-hmm. country they're not officially at war with, violating the sovereignty and attacking both countries. But that's so routine for the rogue state of Israel, which has, of course, U.S. support in the U.N. Security Council, you know, vetoing anything mm-hmm. against uh, Israel, that they, could, they just attack their neighbors regularly with impunity. Um, second of all, this is coming from the White Helmets, which is, you know, quite clearly a Western constructed psy uh, uh, war uh, or info war uh, outlet. So everything that they say needs to be taken with a grain of salt, which isn't to say that the Russian military doesn't make mistakes. They could have bad intelligence. Uh, first of all, Idlib actually isn't controlled by ISIS. It's controlled primarily by Hayat Tahir al-Sham, yeah. which is the Syrian branch of al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda. which even the U.S. government yeah. recognizes as al-Qaeda. So I, I it's a, a slight distinction, one yeah, brand yeah. of jihadis versus the other, uh, but I think it's important. Actually, the U.S. just also conducted an airstrike in Idlib, supposedly uh, taking out an ISIS commander who was there. We know that ISIS leaders have received sanctuary from al-Qaeda, which means they've also effectively received sanctuary from Turkey, which, you know, uh, you know is the backer of Hayat Tahrir al-Sham uh, in that area. It's entirely possible this was a mistake. It's entirely possible that the White Helmets are making this up. It's entirely possible that, that four children were killed and it was still a legitimate strike because as um, the uh, U.S. strikes all over Iraq and Afghanistan have clearly showed, you know, jihadis have families, too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when you're taking out them and their leaders, they quite often have their family and children yeah. on board. I mean, they don't pay any more attention to the rules of war than the Kiev regime does in Ukraine. Uh, so, you know, any of these are absolutely possible. But there is no question that Tahit, uh, that Idlib province is controlled a bit by HTS, Hayat Tahir al-Sham, i.e. al-Qaeda. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the conflict to, uh, you know, uh, it's been a bit frozen of late, but with Russia distracted um, in Ukraine, uh, Turkey has been making noise about launching new offensive through both their military and their Islamist proxies to seize more territory uh, in Syria. Um, and we've also seen them continue strikes in Iraq as well, another state that you know, a NATO state that continue, that routinely attacks both of its neighbors, Iraq and Syria. Um, take that for what it's worth. So let me ask you one more question. And I, I know that that Italy uh, is not necessarily your area expertise of expertise, but you're a very uh, well-rounded um, political military analyst on Europe. 
the Italians, Mark, have suffered the same economic woes over the past year or two that everybody else in the West has. Inflation, especially for food, fuel, housing, have all taken a toll. And it appears that it cost them a government. Uh, the Italian government, though, is notoriously weak. They collapse all the time. But the international economy is also notoriously bad right now, at least as far as inflation goes. Should we expect to see other governments fall due to economic stresses, particularly in Western Europe? Sure. I mean, Italy does because of their broad political system with many, many political parties, their reliance on broad coalition governments um, and governments changing hands at the drop of a hat in the best of times no surprise. But we have also seen the government in Sri Lanka fall, uh, directly connected to the economic conditions. And we have seen uh, uh, the uh, Bojo, the Boris Johnson yeah. uh, government fall in UK. Uh, that one is ostensibly on, on a scandal, really more about political ambitions of, of his rivals. But everything, of course, is exacerbated uh, by the, the inflation, the energy costs, the general economic malaise, which is affecting you know Europe yeah. broadly and and the world as well. We're good. this is just the beginning, right? We're 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 in the good times right now. We're heading towards winter, and winter is coming. Yeah, right. As the Starks are our word to say, or general winter as coming as the Russians are are are, are fond of saying, um, and Europe. Uh, does not have reliable energy supplies at this moment, and it would be perfectly justified considering the economic war that Russia is waging, or that the West is waging against Russia, that they could cut off energy at any point. I mean, if you're going to weaponize your economy and your control of the global economic and financial system against us, there's absolutely no reason we yeah. can't weaponize our economy, i.e. energy against you. Um, things uh, energy costs are still spiraling and food costs are not going to go down despite this deal being signed and governments are going to fall left and right in Europe and elsewhere in the world uh, for the next two or three years. At least we're going to see this instability. OK, Mark Sloboda, thanks for joining us. Mark joined us from Moscow. He is an international affairs and security analyst. Um, we're a little bit pressed for time. Do we want to take a break? We don't have to take a break. No, let's go straight through. Yeah. I have so many questions I want to get to. Uh, I want to take a look now at Central and South America, take a look at what is happening politically in a couple of different places, and also take a look at how the U.S. is um, responding to moves by some of its southern neighbors and yeah. perhaps uh, Very signaling some things to come. Uh, so we are going to get into a couple of different stories. And joining us is Dennis Rogatuk. He's a writer, journalist, and researcher. He's based in Latin America. He's written for Telesur, for International Viewpoints, for Green Left Weekly, and other publications. Dennis, great to have you again. Oh, it's always a pleasure. Um, I have to admit that these uh, these protests in Panama that have apparently been underway for weeks uh, have really like yeah. escaped my notice until just a couple days ago. Uh, Panama has been gripped by protest for weeks now as people block highways to protest rising costs. Um, but it also appears that now the protesters are not going to be satisfied with short term fixes like fuel price caps. 
uh, but instead really want to, to open a serious negotiation with their government on corruption and mismanagement in general. Uh, an Al Jazeera story on the protest movement said it was launched by teachers, but that it has been joined by students, construction workers, and indigenous groups. Uh, and so, Dennis, I'll, I'll start by asking you to talk to us about what these protests are demanding and, you know, what kind of tactics they've been using. Well, first of all, uh, it's actually quite interesting uh, to see the, how the protests in Panama actually started, because uh, the actual, like, uh, you know, the actual, what actually sparked off this mass movement was actually a circulation of of different uh, video videos and and stories uh, from a meeting uh, from a meeting of the uh, Panamanian Assembly uh, Assemblymen's, basically basically celebrating a. Uh, 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 basically, celebrating a sort of the beginning of the new legislative uh, periods uh, by drinking, uh, you know, three hundred forty dollars uh, bottles of uh, of, uh, of whiskey. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was really like the symbolism of the of uh, say this disparity, this inequality that exists that has been persistent in the Panamanian uh, Panamanian society for a very for a very long time. And this is and this was like really, I'd say, like the uh, you know the straw that uh, broke uh, the camel's back. Now, if, now, the, uh, Panama is also an interesting uh, case because, uh, in some ways, Panama has has a lot of similarities uh, with a country like Ecuador. Mm-hmm. Uh, in economic sense, um, the uh, Panamanian, Panamanian currency is uh, pegged to the U.S. dollar, mm-hmm. uh, sort of in a similar way that how Ecuador uses U.S. dollar as its uh, as currency. Mm-hmm. There's a very there's a very strong economic uh, ties uh, between uh, between Panama and the United States. Mm-hmm. Of course, uh, Panama has been a, uh, Panama, Panama benefits a lot from the trade, uh, say between the United States and Latin America as well as well as well as you know the trade that's coming in uh, from from the from the Pacific. Uh, there's been, of course, there's been like you know history of intervention into Panama mm-hmm. uh, by the by the United States. Um, but but I think that what is actually what I think one of the reasons why we have, uh, you know, we haven't witnessed uh, mass protests uh, like these, I say, in the past uh, thirty years, has been precisely be- precisely because the uh, a great number of social organizations and trade union organizations in Panama have been uh, basically been sil- been silenced or uh, or have been, you know, victims of of media suppression. Mm-hmm. Uh, both from within uh, Panama as well as uh, as well as the United States, even these current protests, even though they started uh, almost, they've been going for almost a month now. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have not been, they've not uh, appeared in uh, in any of the uh, major media mm-hmm. uh, uh, around around the world. Mm-hmm. And I believe a great reason uh, is because uh, we've we, a lot of us have kind of become accustomed to believing that Panama is basically is, is still very much a uh, I'll say uh, accustomed to accustomed to, to believing that uh, Panama is still is kind of this uh, this, quiet, this quiet country in the in, in Central America that's uh, uh, that has basic that you know that hasn't that that since the uh, uh, since the since the presidency of Omar Torrijos mm-hmm. uh, hasn't had any, uh, any any kind of radical change or development, but I mm-hmm. believe. This is what we are uh, starting to see now, mm-hmm. and I also believe that the tactics which have been utilized by by the protesters are very similar to the tactics uh, in Ecuador. Mm-hmm. So it's involved um, you know, mass, mass organizations uh, blocking major uh, roads, uh, roads, bridges, other kinds of uh, infrastructure, mm-hmm. focusing their 
the protests on the country on the country on the countryside mm -hmm. uh, hence why uh, they have now been you know complaints by major agricultural producers that uh, these the, this protesters are, are impacting the agricultural center mm -hmm. agricultural sector sorry um, and also the uh, which, which which mentioned uh, as well that you know these protesters aren't just seeking you know uh, sort of uh, some uh, uh, some sort of minor uh, changes or uh, or, uh, or some new uh, price caps, mm -hmm. even though the government has uh, has, de has demanded. But there is there is a there is a sort of a, like a growing discontent with the political system and mm -hmm. the economic system overall uh, in Panama. So I would say, in many ways, what we are starting to see, you know, these protesters transform from like Ecuador-style protests to Colombia or Chile-style protests. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So going from uh, is simply having, uh, you know, these protests being simply because of, you know, kind of the bread and butter everyday economic issues to a to, to possibly, uh, you know, evolving into a, uh, into a protests for a systemic change. I mean, these were two two themes that I wanted to raise, right? Which is, you know, why these these protests have really gone unreported, at least unreported in major English language media, right? So uh, while I think the Ecuador protests, you know, they got they got some write ups after mm -hmm. after a couple of days, I think. Um, but also, I wanted to ask you to elaborate a, a little bit on the uh, relationship between this Panamanian government and the United States, because you know. Uh, it is. I, I do not want to be accused of like finding finding a reason to blame the United States for everything that happens around the world. I really am not interested in that. I think it is. It can get silly and simplistic. But you know, the U.S. Ha enjoys involving itself in the political decisions of Central and South America, and it does have a very long history uh, with with Panama. And so, you know, I think it is probably not unreasonable to take a look at how you know how the U.S could be involved in creating the circumstances uh, uh, under which these, these protests arise? Well, the current president of Panama is uh, Laurentino uh, Cortizo, who was, um, who was elected in, uh, in 2019. Now, I would classify, I would say that the, the current uh, administration of the country is not quite as uh, pro-U.S., it's not quite as, you know, tied uh, with the U.S. foreign policy as the previous governments were or as some of the other or as uh, you know, some of the right-wing uh, governments in Central Central America uh, mm -hmm. are, um, but nevertheless, like what you know, when, when we think about the Panama, what we, what we really have to think about is just the the amount of multinational capital which passes through uh, Panama. So, uh, Pan uh, just you know, simply simply due to uh, Panama's uh, control uh, of the of the canal, and so just just due to the you know the volume of trade. Uh, that um, uh, volume of trade that it processes from the United States to, to the rest of uh, uh, South America. I think that's what really uh, I think that's that, that's one of the, the one of the best classifications of of the kind of relationship uh, which they have. So Panama is absolutely vital to the, to the U.S. interests uh, in the in the region. Uh, now, should now uh, are the current are the current pro uh, the current problems in Panama caused by the United States or its mm -hmm. intervention, uh, I would I would also be cautious about blaming in a, you know the United States entirely because we have to we have to we also have to remember that uh, this year alone uh, this year alone uh, Panama has actually has actually had the fastest growing economy across Latin America mm. uh, so far it is it is prognosed to record at least fourteen percent growth absolutely enormous 
just mostly because of the uh, because of the increased trade going through uh, Panama Canal, but the because of uh, because of its uh, economic neoliberal economic system because of its uh, you know uh, because of this sort of a uh, uh, you know technocratic uh, political system which Panama has uh, 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 Panama has the uh, the ordinary people are very unlikely to see the benefits of this of mm-hmm. this fast growth. Instead, what we're seeing is you know is inflate is inflation and. Um, uh, higher higher cost of living, you know, hitting hitting their pockets. So in a way, you know, these protests are also uh, some uh, a way of a way of express the dissatisfaction with the way that uh, the wealth of Panama mm-hmm. is being concentrated within the hands of the of its economic and political elite, with the blessing of the United States, mm-hmm. not not with the cause, but with the blessing of the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, multinational capital and and the U.S. government. And how do you expect the Panamanian government to to respond in the end? Well, well, I think I think we're already we're already seeing the uh, the kind of response uh, they've given. So uh, they um, uh, the response of the, of the of the government so far has kind of has kind of mirrored the response uh, of the Ecuadorian government to its own protests. So, mm-hmm. so they have promised and they've proposed uh, you know reductions in gasoline and the, gasoline and petroleum for uh, um, uh, for it, say for this for this year, as well as uh, proposing. Um, uh, price caps for some of the uh, uh, some of the some of the products. So, uh, so, so say, I think it was like uh, rice, meat, uh, you know, uh, tuna fish. Also, you know, uh, uh, bread. Sort of the, the staple goods. I would say the, uh, the 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 products that, that have been the most impacted by the current uh, increase in the, in the food prices around around the world. Um, but, but I think with regards to a political solution. Uh, by the government, this um, I I see. I, I I believe I believe the government will will try to do anything possible to avoid uh, the uh, you know uh, to to avoid any any kind any kind of a I'll say a radical uh, change. That is to say, the government actually be, actually being overthrown because they also they also they also understand that and they also learn that from. From the history of Panama, just how likely a U.S. and a real U.S. intervention could be in, mm-hmm. in, ca- in case that a um, uh, a government favorable to the, to the United States is overthrown, but uh, overthrown by the people, and a new government arises uh, uh, in its place, because we've seen, uh, I think, from the history of Panama, we've seen you know, numerous attempts uh, uh, by the by the U.S. to, to depose Omar Torrijos. Mm-hmm. A particular, uh, especially especially following his, uh, especially following the nationalization of the of the uh, Panama Panama Canal. So I so I do believe that the uh, Panamanian government is is unlikely. It's very unlikely to resort to first of all to, to resort to use any kind of a mass de- mass deadly force. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I believe I believe in the end it will be forced into into giving concessions to the to the mass protests. Yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to watch, and it'll be interesting to see, you know, how uh, how long the protest movement in Ecuador will be uh, placated by the, you know the, the concessions that they have gotten from their government. Uh, Dennis, I want to talk uh, about Mexico now a little bit, and I'm mindful that we are going to come up on this uh, station break at one p.m. So I'm going to ask this question, and then we might have you answer on the other side of this break. Um, but 
I'm asking listeners, maybe they remember back in December, there was this opinion columnist who praised Joe Biden's efforts to push back on the Mexican president's energy imperialism. And if I understand this correctly, uh, the the imperialism that they were talking about was a Mexican state-owned oil company buying a share in this shell refinery outside of Houston because Mexico wants to be able to refine more of its own oil rather than send it to the United States to be refined and then buy it back at much higher prices. And this, of course, you know, is unacceptable to countries who want to continue neo-colonial economic relationships with poorer countries. So the U.S. is mad. And just two days ago, it announced that it was going to bring Mexico before the USMCA's trade dispute mechanism. Uh, That's our trade agreement, the current trade agreement with Mexico. Uh, It was going to bring it in front of this dispute mechanism over what it calls Mexico's unfair treatment of uh, U.S. companies. So the Mexican president says he is seeking energy independence. Uh, In response to the U.S. announcement, AMLO started a press release with a cumbia song, the chorus of which is, oh, how scary, oh, how scary. So he's just (laughs) trolling Joe Biden. But, you know, the the Mexican and the U.S. presidents had just sat down for what was billed as a cordial meeting that resulted in some uh, agreements on migration. Right. Uh, You know, we we talked about this before, how it's being celebrated in some quarters uh, that Mexico is going to pay for, you know, smart border security like you know, uh, uh, drones, right? Armed drones patrolling the border are better than armed humans patrolling the border somehow. Uh, But it seems like behind the scenes, actually, this dispute um, could be a lot more consequential and a lot more serious. And so I want to talk about what Mexico is trying to achieve here and what the U.S. is hoping to prevent. But you got one minute and then I'm going to interrupt you and then we're going to take this up on the other side, Dennis. Right. Well, uh, Mexico is just trying to achieve energy sovereignty. That's, uh, I mean, I mean, and that's it. And uh, this is a this is a fundamental part of AMLO's uh, uh, reforms of AMLO's uh, agenda, because mm-hmm. uh, he has he has already been pushing other kinds of uh, other kinds of initiatives. Earlier um, uh, earlier in in June, he also uh, you know the uh, the Mexican Mexican government uh, proceeded with nationalization of more uh, nat- of more lithium reserves mm-hmm. uh, across the country in order to establish state owned. Um, <clears throat> Uh, state-owned lithium processing and manufacturing uh, mm-hmm. uh, enter- enterprise that would, you know, assist in the manufacturing of uh, electric of parts for electric cars. Hey, Dennis, I'm going to interrupt you. I'm going to interrupt you right there because it's a good stopping point, and we'll pick up on the other side. I want to ask more of, you know, what what Mexico is doing to achieve this energy independence and what the U.S. is doing to try to prevent it. So we're going to take a quick break here. We're going to come back. We'll still be talking to Dennis Rogatuk, a journalist based in Latin America. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C., and we'll be back in just a sec. on 
Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we are continuing our conversation with journalist Dennis Rogatuk, who was talking to us about what Mexico is doing to try to achieve energy independence and what the United States is doing to, uh, you know, in its words, try to protect its companies from unfair treatment. But I think you could also probably say that to to maintain an economic uh, relationship that benefits the United States primarily. So, Dennis, please, please continue with uh, what AMLO has has planned and is trying to implement in terms of energy sovereignty. Uh, I, I just mentioned the case of the nationalization of um, uh, of, lithi- of uh, various lithium reserves and also the promotion of uh, state-owned uh, lithium lithium enterprises. But there have been other attempts mm-hmm. as well. Very importantly, in June, uh, the um, uh, Amos, Amos government attempted attempted to pass a, an, an an energy reform, which would reverse the energy reform originally promoted, originally adopted in 2013 by the Enrique Nieto's government, which which actually opened up the Mexico's energy markets to uh, uh, to foreign to foreign firms, uh, and which, uh, which 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 also uh, allowed uh, this uh, kind of the partial privatization of uh, Pemex, that's the Mexican. A state-owned um, petroleum and, and gas uh, company. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the so the law that that was proposed by AMLO would have uh, would have so would have uh, not, not would have not only like reversed uh, you know the influence of foreign firms in Mexico's uh, energy enterprises, but it would it would have also promoted uh, you know the um, let's see would would have also like promoted an, an increased. Uh, the, the say and the influence of the Mexican uh, governments in in the in the in the different like energy initiatives and enterprises uh, around the country, so allowing allowing for uh, the setting of uh, say of price caps and actually helping to prevent the kind of situation which we are seeing in Panama and Ecuador and other countries uh, with, uh, with 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 fuel prices you know hitting hitting uh, in the walls of, of ordinary uh, people. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, that reform was not uh, passed uh, as, as, it, uh, as it requires a two-thirds majority in Congress, a major, uh, two-thirds majority which uh, AMLO uh, lacks. Uh, but this is not, this is not the, deterred his, um, you know, his, his plans to transform uh, Mexico's uh, energy markets. Uh, as, as, you, as you just mentioned, mm-hmm. you know, the, the story of... Um, of the refinery of uh, the attempts to uh, uh, you know change change the dynamics uh, between the United States and Mexico with regards to the uh, re- refining oil is of course another another kind of uh, dimension mm. the um, I believe uh, I believe that uh, Amos government will continue to seek you know other other routes and other and other initiatives to uh, to, to basically to, to promote energy energy sovereignty uh, in Mexico, mm-hmm. and uh, and also and also to reduce a greater reduce its reliance on let's say on mm-hmm. the United States and um, and on I don't know, and on other other countries, I believe that in some in some ways AMLO is trying to pro, trying to promote uh, the the kind of policies which which were first initi- which were first initiated in during the 1930s by the by the governor by the government of. Uh, Lazaro Cárdenas, who was mm-hmm. the first government that that was that nationalized uh, the uh, Mex- Mexico's uh, oil and uh, gas uh, industry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, talk to me a little bit about the the U.S. You know, saying, "Well, this isn't fair," and and trying to use the trade agreement to to block some of these moves. <laughs> this is quite ironic, uh, <laughs> to, to say to say the least. Uh, I'd say, considering considering just you know the overwhelming influence uh, that uh, United States has wielded all, uh, throughout de- throughout decades uh, in the energy sectors of, I'll say, not just Mexico but countries all around, uh, less less than America. Um, of course, I believe that in, I believe in some ways, uh, United States fears that uh, fears a repetition of what happened with Venezuela. Uh, so the so the nationalization of the oil of the oil the full nationalization of the oil uh, production and of the refinery uh, sector in in Venezuela by the government of Hugo Chavez not only it not only allowed allowed the country to uh, really to, to achieve energy sovereignty but also to use the revenues from the from the exports of mm-hmm. the of, of both refined oil and, and, and crude oil. To put it into social programs, to to really put it into, uh, to, to really allow you know, the, the the people, the the Venezuelan people, to uh, to feel you know to, for the first time in history to see the the, uh, the wealth of the of the nation being being put into into the, into into their own development, into mm-hmm. into achieving a, uh, into building a new a new kind of a. A humane society, and I believe this is the fear which which United States has, and uh, why, why it's uh, as rang has been ringing alarm bells all across. Um, you know, even even with the slightest kind of uh, initiative that Amlo has been that Amlo that Amlo shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. In also, that, in that regard, it's mm-hmm. it is unlikely. I do have to say, it is extremely unlikely that uh, Amlo would follow the path of the path of uh, Hugo Chavez, despite mm-hmm. you know the warnings and the paranoia. Uh, from the United States, but uh, I, I believe Amlo is much more likely, as I, as I said, is much more likely to uh, try try to re- reindicate, you know, the, the legacy of uh, Lazaro Cardenas and you know this this this, leg- this legacy of uh, of achieving like you know a strong uh, sovereign uh, a sovereign Mexico. Mm-hmm. Dennis, we're we're running out of time, but I do want to ask you about these comments made by U.S. Southcom Commander Laura Richardson at the Aspen Security Forum. She is still talking about how resource-rich Central America is and uh, talking about how activities in the region impact national security in the U.S., talking about adversaries taking advantage of the the resources in Central America, all of which I think can be quite scary, uh, considering, you know, what we've been willing to do to uh, to have access to resources we decide are important. But the other comments that she made uh, that blew my mind, she was talking about Colombia, saying— Colombia is a great story. Off the charts, the capabilities of their military. They are an exporter of security. They train other partner nation militaries to be strong. And I wanted to ask if you wanted to just give us a quick comment on the on the great success story of Colombia's military and the kind of security that they export. Well, I think on the first point, I think it's worth uh, mentioning, you know, the uh, the tens of thousands of civilians that were massacred by the Colombian military in the last, um, uh, tw- uh, particularly in the last uh, 20, 20 years, I say under the pretext of what you call, you know, false uh, positive. That was the tactic used by the Colombian military to assassinate, uh, you know, uh, c- uh, civilians, mostly in the rural uh, areas. And then... Uh, and then class and then classify them as gorillas, or mm-hmm. uh, so so belonging to either the FARC or one of the other 
um, armed uh, armed organizations. Uh, with regards to exporting, um, with regards to uh, you know training partner nations uh, and promote and promoting security, I think it's it's definitely worth uh, mentioning the. Um, uh, the assassination of, of the, uh, the the assassination of the Haitian uh, president yes. in, uh, in, in uh, last year, and the way that 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 promoted that helped to promote. Uh, sorry, uh, uh, first of all, the role that first of all all of, his, all of his assassins were were Colombians. All of his assassins were were trained and had experience in operations in Colombia. Were trained were were, were trained uh, in Colombia. And were trained specifically for these uh, for these kinds of missions. Mm -hmm. So uh, promoting security uh, among partner nations. Well, this you know, uh, the example of of Haiti certainly uh, certainly certainly springs to mind. Now, uh, has uh, has this been beneficial for the United States? Well, yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, having a because uh, having because effectively having uh, the Colombian military act as a, pro as a proxy army for the United States is. Um, is it, it was was the key to you know to the United States being uh, uh, being able to I'd say, I'd say con not 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 simply control but uh, I'd say keep watch on different governments uh, uh, around around the region and if an opportunity arose to take one out as was the case in Haiti mm -hmm. then they were then they were able uh, to do this now how is this going to change with the president with the presidency of Gustavo Petro. Petro has promised. One of his key promises was to demilitarize uh, the country and implement uh, the peace accords mm -hmm. uh, signed in twenty sixteen, which would involve a very, very drastic reduction in the funding for the for the Colombian military and really uh, the begin uh, the attempts to really um, um, uh, basically dismantle dismantle kind of this appara this apparatus of uh, and and this and this mentality which has been built up. In Colombia over the, over the last uh, twenty years, with Colombia basically being uh, used as a, well, for the lack of a better word, as a military cartel to, to carry out, uh, you know, to, to carry out, you know, United States dirty work across mm. Latin America. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how, how that works out for him. That was Dennis Rogatuk. He's a freelance journalist based in Latin America. Dennis, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. We're going to just go straight through because there, there is there is a I lot to get through on this beginning. Friday. You're always, There's so much news today. John, I was about to say you're always right, but I wouldn't uh. say that. But you are right now, and you're right <laughs> most of the time, buddy. Uh, yeah, we have some important tech stories that I want to get to. Uh, we have another incursion by tech giants into healthcare, and we have uh, the evolution of robot dogs and, yeah. and where it might be taking us. And so joining us to talk about both of these issues is Chris Garafa, a technologist and privacy specialist. Chris, thanks for being here. Oh, great. Uh, great to be here. Thanks for having me back. Let's talk about this story. I hate it is Amazon buying primary healthcare oh, provider yeah. One Medical. Uh, we can get into privacy implications and, uh, you know, the, the tragic elevation of tech solutions over actual doctor visits in a sec. But I want to just, you know, stop and contemplate the, the immediate repulsion that I think we should all have to accompany that is interested only in making money, buying a company that is supposed to be making us well, right? Because Amazon wants to make money and it must see a bright future in taking money from people who are sick, 
and taking more money from them than the attention and care that they provide is worth, you know, because that's how you make a profit. So, uh, you know, what does it say about our healthcare system that Amazon is trying to break into it as a market? Well, Neil Lindsay, who's the senior uh, vice president of Amazon Health Services, actually is quoted in the Washington Post as saying, we think healthcare is high on the list of experiences that need reinvention. Right. And he's technically not wrong about that. No. It does need, I mean, it needs to be revolutionized, but Amazon isn't going to be the one to do it. I think reinvention is the new disruption. If we remember, Uber was going to disrupt the car market, mm -hmm. um, you know, the taxi market. Airbnb was disrupting hotels. Mm -hmm. Well, Look how that worked out for the drivers of Ubers, for the, you know, for neighborhoods where property speculators just come in and set up millions of, of Airbnbs. I mean, look how that kind of disruption or reinvention, as they'll call it, has worked out so far. And I think we can see what it's going to be like should Amazon actually get to get into this field. This is a company that knows everything you're shopping for online. Mm -hmm. This is a company that wants to be your grocer, they want to be your pharmacist, and now they want to be your medical provider mm -hmm. as well. I mean, think about, we can't not talk about the, the privacy implications of this too, because that's really what they're, they're in this for the data. They are absolutely in this for the data. Uh, Neil Lindsay, Jeff Bezos, they don't care about your health, Michelle, no, John, they don't no. care particularly about when you went to the doctor or if you're able to, if you have insurance, anything like that. They want to know if you're searching for a certain thing on Amazon um, and then you buy something at their Whole Foods or one of those Amazon Go shops, the cashless, uh, cashierless ones even. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, what happens when you go to the doctor next? What are you being diagnosed with? What are you talking about? That's the kind of information that they all want. And it creates some extremely, extremely concerning situations that we can think of. How is Amazon, if they are, going to keep this information separate from their current marketing stuff? How are they going to do that? Are they going to do that? Yeah. In fact, uh, already Amy Klobuchar has said that uh, that there needs to be investigations and the FTC needs to look at this deal. Um, you know, it's three point nine billion dollars. Yeah. And very significant for one medical and not very significant at all for Amazon. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that they're seeing a whole lot of profit coming out of this. And also, Chris, need uh, just to point out, one medical one medical itself is not a profitable country or company, right? So Amazon is buying this. Obviously, they're going to say, no, 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 we we know how to re revolutionize this, this company that, like, you know, charges people an annual subscription fee and has an app where you can make <laughs> you can make appointments. That's sort of I'm not sure what else is really significant about this company, but I think it's probably worth mentioning. They're paying a lot of money for a company that has not demonstrated that it can make any money. Yeah, an annual subscription fee to see a doctor. I feel like we've got that already. Yes, um, we do. Like, right. You know, on top of the payment, of course, that you're going to make. And that's just, you know, what if you could put your Amazon, you know, gift card towards your doctor visit? Mm -hmm. I don't know what they're imagining here, but it's going to be something dystopian like that. It right. Is. Um, I mean, this this deal cannot go through what we should do, because we do need to revolutionize how we look at healthcare in this country. What we should do is take the vast wealth and the, the vast infrastructure that Amazon has and apply it for good. Mm -hmm. Because the technology that they have could do many, many good things mm -hmm. for people's health care. 
uh, acquiring one medical and all of the nearly one million record uh, individual records that they have is absolutely not one of those good things. No. And I also just think, you know, it, it it's to me also feels like it is a tech solution to a problem that doesn't need a tech solution. Right. The solution to, you know, the, the reinvention that healthcare needs in the United States is, I think, simply more time for people to, you know, it needs to be cheaper. People need to have more time to access it. And we need to have actually more time with doctors. Right. So you can have a human being to work through problems with. Right. And it seems to me that what Amazon is offering is a sort of tech window, you know, a, t- a tight time frame, a tech window through which you can interact with the human being. And who knows, like an AI in the cloud taking all the data it has for me to try to solve medical problems. I just don't, you know, I, I just don't think that this is the the reinvention that we need. The other thing that I, I worry about here is labor implications, right? Mm-hmm. We have seen studies that demonstrate that the presence of Amazon facilities in communities drives wages down. And so on one hand, I think we were going to have pressure to assume that anything that is done with a smartphone or an app is is uh, superior to things that are done, you know, face to face in physical proximity with each yes. other, which is a, a falsehood, I think. Uh, and then also, you know, the, it's sort of like the sort of gig therapy apps that you now have on your phone. Right. Uh, the people who are working for those apps are not making any money. Right. And so I don't think what we need on top of this idea that everything is better when it's remote is a possibility of really pushing, you know, like creating a a sort of uh, labor uh, price crisis. I don't know if that. Yeah, that's. Yeah, go ahead. You're absolutely right. I think it's going to be it's going to be a real awful situation uh, for people who are working in healthcare as well as people who seek healthcare. Mm -hmm. And, you know, speaking of those, just just to warn people about those, the you know, better health and the online therapy apps, their privacy policies are absolutely awful yeah um you know they they are gonna they are sharing your information left and right even if you're a specific therapist who's making maybe twenty dollars thirty dollars an hour uh isn't those apps absolutely are so just a, a side note a warning on those if you you know are dealing with mental health issues because many of us are in this the with the economy with covid with everything going on it's certainly understandable but try to avoid those apps if you can yeah, we we have actually talked to people. We talked to a therapist who had worked with with one of those apps, and she detailed yeah. this just the the labor conditions that were unacceptable, the security concerns. Uh, yeah, well, you've you've said that Amy Klobuchar is uh, is already saying that this deal needs to be reviewed. So, do, what do you think are the chances that uh, this this deal will not be allowed to go through? You know, right now, I think there's a good chance the deal will go through. The FTC has not shown that it's particularly interested in taking on. Amazon in any particular way. But what we also need to do is put that pressure on Amazon or on the FTC to say, no, we're not. We don't want this. We don't want Amazon having records of people's health records. Mm -hmm. That's something that we have to do. And if it means, you know, calling our representatives, our senators and saying, please, you know, back Klobuchar's call, make it stronger, then so be it. That's what needs to happen. Um, But just one senator, one representative or a small group of them asking the FTC to do something, I don't see it being uh, very effective right now. Mm -hmm. The other thing, I'm not sure if you mentioned this or if it's worth mentioning on its own, Chris, is uh, the fact that Amazon does so much computing work for the government. 
You know what I mean? It's not just that necessarily Amazon wants this data and is going to collect it for you, but they have really close relationships with a whole lot of government agencies that I can imagine people would not necessarily want to have access to all of their private medical information. Well, certainly the, the government can already subpoena some of that information. They can already go to a healthcare provider. Um, as Amazon grows, as they plan to grow in the healthcare sector, they will just be the kind of the one-stop shop to to get that information. Chris, I want to ask you one more question uh, about robot dogs with machine guns on their heads. Uh, <laughs> the Internet yeah. was set ablaze this week by a video of a robot dog like the ones Boston Dynamics has been showing off for a couple years. Uh, but this one had a gun attacked to it, uh, attached to it and was firing bullets or at least appeared to be wandering around an enclosed area, you know, sh- shooting off randomly. Uh, the dive, the, sorry, the drive dove into the story and found that the video that has been circulating on Twitter had actually been posted to YouTube in March by a man named Alexander At- uh, Adamanov. He was described as a Russian-born inventor and a tech entrepreneur who seems to live in the United States. Uh, He at least has a company that was founded in California. It is not clear where this video was shot, and the robot dog in it looks like one that is sold by a Chinese company. And so I thought this is interesting on a couple of levels. Like, it is probably an indication of the future— Uh, Maybe not of warfare, but certainly I can think a future of border patrol security, uh, which is terrifying enough. It also, I think, shows how this technology proliferates and uh, and develops. Right. I mean, Boston Dynamics might have been first. To, to develop these kinds of robots. I don't know that they are first. Uh, they might have been. But you can't put that genie back into the bottle, right? And without regulations and, I think, shared and enforced ethical boundaries as to how tech should be used, this is always going to spread. And so I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about the the saga of this video and whether this is something that we really should be concerned about. I mean, especially considering... We already have lethal drones, right? How how much more worrying is it that, that now they're going to be on the ground? Look, there, there's guns mounted on robot dogs. I'm concerned about that, Michelle. <laughs> yes, we yes. Be, <laughs> we should all be concerned about that. That's, there's no question. But this is where this kind of technology has been going for a while. Um, autonomous killing machines, uh, whether they're fully or semi-autonomous, meaning that they can just take orders and go, or they are guided, but still making decisions on the ground for themselves. That's where the Pentagon wants to go. And I thought it was very interesting that certain articles about this point to, you know, China mm-hmm. um, as you know a country that's developing this. But the U.S. government has been working on these technologies with Boston Dynamics and some other, you know, much smaller firms in order to uh, to lead the pack, so to say, with the robot dogs. Mm-hmm. Look, the UN has already said uh, international humanitarian law fully applies to all weapon systems, including lethal autonomous weapon systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, of course, the US doesn't particularly listen to what the UN has to say when it doesn't go their way. So we're going to see continuing development unfortunately, in this field. And that's why we have to be, you know, really paying attention and really mounting our own movements, because I'm not, we're not going to see an Amy Klobuchar or anyone speak out against this, mm-hmm. because it'll be for the protection of U.S. empire. That's why it's up to us, you know, to really, uh, you know, refuse to work 
or a Boston Dynamics or a GE in their autonomous warfare systems. You know, if you're an engineer and you're coming out of MIT and they're trying to recruit you, tell them off because we don't need to be developing these these systems. Um, we we cannot cannot let the future of warfare uh, continue to expand in this direction. It is going to be just devastating, devastating for the people who are on the other ends of those guns. And you mentioned, you know, this could be used on the border. They're also looking into how to use these in domestic situations mm-hmm. with policing. So think about the the uprising we had a couple of years ago against racism and police terror. Think about having robot dogs with, you know, even non-lethal weapons mm-hmm. mounted on them coming at people protesting uh, and standing up in the streets. I mean, that would be the scene out of a horror movie, a dystopian horror movie from 30 years ago. And without some intervention, it's going to be the reality uh, within just a a small number of years. Yeah, I have to say, I absolutely see these in sort of uh, domestic policing scenarios and border security scenarios, because these things are, you know, they seem like they'd be pretty easy to take out if you were armed. But if you're not... Uh, then they are a lot scarier. That was Chris Garuffa, technology and privacy specialist. Chris, thanks for joining us. Great. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come back to talk some politics, whether you like it or not. Things are developing as we're waiting. Yep. Just just wait. When we get back on the other side of this break, we'll have breaking news for you. <laughs> uh, you're listening to us on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back. Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here in the studio with my co-host, Michelle Witte. There was a lot of political news this week, as Maryland held its primary election on Tuesday. Uh, AP still isn't calling a winner in the gubernatorial race, mm. but CNN just called a winner. We'll uh, we'll get into that in a moment. On the Republican side, a strongly pro-Trump elect, uh, election denier won the nomination. He barely figures in the polls against any of the major Democrats. In Georgia, Republican Senate nominee Herschel Walker is in trouble yet again after claiming to have been an FBI agent and to have shot a man in the line of duty. Okay. Neither of those assertions is true. Uh, Walker has a bad habit of fantasizing things in his past and then presenting them as fact. And Missouri Republican Senator Josh Hawley, who sees himself as president someday, was knocked down a peg or two uh, last night during the January 6th committee hearings. If you have access to Twitter, you have got to see what people are tweeting about Josh Hawley. It took all my energy not to laugh out loud while Chris Garafa was on the line. Um, Committee members showed last night the now famous photo of Holly on January 6, 2021, with his fist in the air while egging on the would-be rioters from his safe spot behind the fences. Uh, the committee then showed Holly running for his life once his pals had breached the Capitol. And in a bizarre twist, get this. Congressman Lee Zeldin, the Republican nominee for governor of New York, was giving a speech last night when a man from the crowd jumped on stage and tried to stab him. 
Zeldin was able to grab the attacker's wrist before being stabbed, and two bystanders came to his aid. The, attack, the attacker was arrested and charged with a felony and almost immediately released on his own recognizance. Not before his pants fell down, because this man was stumbling drunk. Stumbling drunk, and his pants literally <laughs> fell down. It, it sounds really cool when it says, they tried to stab him, and you grabbed his arm, and then you watch what happened, which I would not want yeah. to have happen to me. Shouldn't happen to no, anyone. No. Don't come cr- close to me with a blade. But it was, it was a lot more shambling. <laughs> it was. And the knife was actually in the shape of a little kitty yeah uh, uh you know the, like little, hello the japanese with, hello with kitty that's what ears. it's called hello mm-hmm. kitty the ears were were uh, like daggers yeah and it was in his hand like a uh, brass knuckles so mm-hmm. it was dangerous it was like a double knife but it was in a hello kitty design yeah yeah uh he he said as he jumped on stage you're done you're done um he claims today to have no memory of doing any of this So we'll see how that plays out. We're joined by Ray Valencia. Ray is a Sputnik News analyst and the producer of this show. Ray, there is so much to go through. Oh, I know. It's ridiculous. So you know what? Primaries coming up. And before we January sixth to talk about. And before we get into the deeper issues like January sixth, there are a couple of things that I want to hit real quickly. Uh, This Herschel Walker thing, you know, claiming he's an FBI agent. And he uh, (laughs) shot a man in the line of duty. It just gets more and more bizarre. I wanted to read a a quote from um, from a speech that he gave. He said, y'all didn't know I was an agent, a federal agent. I probably shouldn't tell you that y'all don't care. But anyway, I've been in law enforcement before. So I grab my gun and I say, I will kill him. Herschel Walker won the Heisman Trophy and I'm going to kill him. Mr. Walker then went on to say that he hears voices. I'm totally Mm. serious. I was going to say he's going to kill him. Yeah. He's talking like to himself. He he says he hears voices and the voices are constantly disrespecting him. And that's why he loses his temper. Yeah, that's not that's very upsetting. Yeah, that's not good at all. That's a little dangerous. If you're psychotic and you think people are talking against you or. Yeah, I I don't know. I think that's a little. Well, he went hmm. on to tell a story that was very, very disturbing. He said, here's what he said. His own words. This is a quote. Herschel, people are disrespecting you all the time. Unquote. He said, quoting the voices. People are always doing stuff that you've never done. All of a sudden, this other voice says, Herschel, your parents didn't raise you like that. Oh, yes, they did. No, they didn't. Yes, they did. Sometimes I think I'm losing my mind. And then he says, I was going to meet a guy. As I got closer and closer to where I was going to meet this guy, I started to pray. I said, Lord, I need some help right now. I'm about to do something stupid. He was going to kill the guy. And he came out and said, I was going to kill him. He said, I got out of my car and I put my hand on my gun as I was walking to his truck. Before I could see the guy, I saw the sign on the back of the truck that said, honk if you love Jesus. And I put my gun away. It is starting to sound like it is actually Mm. a a cruelty to be... Yeah, this isn't funny Herschel anymore. Walker through the, the rigors of a campaign to the extent that he is, you know, engaging in rigorous campaigning. Yeah, uh, it's it's yeah. Uh, I, I, it's funny. I've turned oh, a corner I, on him yeah, and I'm to starting to feel sorry. Because, yeah, I feel yeah. sorry of, about him. Lee Zeldin, let me t- say real quickly, the guy with the Hello Kitty knife. 
Um, he was released this morning. Zeldin wasn't hurt. Uh, this is this is going to be a campaign issue for Zeldin for a little bit. Probably not enough to overtake Governor Hochul. But, um, I mean, the guy was charged with the felony count of attempted murder, and they released him on his own recognizance probably before he was even fully sobered up. Uh, just incredible. Uh, TheHill.com, very quickly, has a new poll that's out today uh, that ought to give all of us pause. It shows... Joe Biden losing to Donald Trump, 46-43. More disturbing than that, it shows Bernie Sanders losing to Donald Trump, 45-40. to mm. So, something to think about there. Um, I mentioned a moment ago that CNN is calling the American, the American, the Maryland governor's race. Uh, the winner is Wes Moore. He ended up with 37.8% of the vote. He's the former uh, CEO of the Robin Hood Foundation. This is a really good guy. This guy grew up on the mean streets of Baltimore. He he made it big, Rhodes Scholar, White House Fellow, got rich, number one selling New York Times uh, memoir, and he gave all the money away. Hmm. Just gave it away to try to... Um, to push education in the inner cities, uh, computer literacy, things like that. He's facing Delegate Dan Cox, as I said, an election mm. denier who doesn't have a prayer to win that race. Um, in other news that I've got here, uh, and I'm going to save the QAnon stuff for you because that's uh, you're you're an expert on uh, on that issue. Um. What was I going to say? Oh, Newsom, Gavin Newsom. Right. You know, we've been, oh, we've been kind of laughing about <laughs> Gavin Newsom uh, taking on the National Republican Party. But he's actually using his own campaign funds to take out ads in Texas mocking Governor Abbott on a whole bunch of issues, mm-hmm. abortion, immigration, all kinds of fun stuff. And uh, Abbott doesn't like it, but hasn't responded yet. So we'll see what happens. So then, Ray, really the big news was uh, was January 6th last night. Yeah, let's uh, just talk let's about talk that talk about for that. a minute because we're not going to have another hearing for a little while. Right, it'll until, be September. I guess September. That's but I right. think the big takeaway, the big key line from last night is after all the crisis and everything, on the 7th, uh, during his press conference, Donald Trump says, I don't want to say the election is over. Right, right. You know? Like an after impetuous all- child. Like an impetuous child. So let's talk about this in the context of Donald Trump potentially running or announcing that he's going to run for 2024. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't care about 2024 per se, but it's the now that's interesting to me because yes. he wants to change the conversation, I would think, right? From January 6th, all this stuff coming out. So he runs and then he takes up the airspace because now he's running for office. Mm-hmm. So it may push him. I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud. It may push him to announce during the midterms, which would freak out the Republicans mm-hmm. rather than wait till later. And then I'm just thinking about what is the path? So Donald Trump announces that he's going to run in 2024. Does he run as a Republican? And right. how's that going to look? Because I can't imagine the Republicans, the party leaders, supporting him at this point. They're going to try to kneecap him all through the primary process. Is he going to be successful in achieving the RNC nomination? I just don't see that happening. 
If the election were held today, I would say, yeah, he wins the nomination. Um, but between now and 2024, I mean, that's a lifetime in politics. It's a and, lifetime. And so you've got does some he people. Run as an independent? And, no, no, not I mean, a chance. No, not a chance. He'll run as an independent. But you've got you've got a lot of people like um, like uh, Ted Cruz, for example, or. Uh, or uh, Mark DeSantis, who say they're running regardless of whether or not he runs. And and so, you know, you add to that Larry Hogan, the, the outgoing governor of of Maryland, and there are going to be alternatives. And I'm wondering if between now and 2024, are Americans just going to be tired of all this nonsense? Like, we're well, this constantly is, this beating is up thing. in... Yeah, this is the thing, John. In order for Trump to win, he's going to have to expand market share. He's going to have to gain voters because he's at the point over the inflection point now where he's losing voters. There are Trump supporters and then there's everybody Ron, else. Ron DeSantis. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, I agree yeah. with you. You know I, what I'm saying? I agree. So and he's I not just, getting any younger. And I mean, seriously. And more who? than 50% of Republicans polled. Or saying they want to see somebody else run. Yeah. Okay. So he is the most popular. I mean, this is the this is the problem, right? He's the most popular Republican. And at the same time, at this point, and we're not even close to 2024, more than half Republicans do not want to see him run again. Yeah, that's true. So I just don't see it, it happening. I just don't see him getting very far. He may announce and create a bunch of havoc for the Republicans, but I I just don't see him winning. And how is the family going to get involved in this again? I don't think that I mean, they will. Trump really won because of the Trump brand. He was able to expand the brand. Ivanka Trump out there speaking to suburban uh, Republicans looking like Princess Trump, mm-hmm. right? She attracted a lot of voters. And then Donald Trump Jr., he's bombastic. He's not really like his father in many ways. He doesn't play golf. He likes to hunt. He was really connecting with that working class, you know, uh, really aggressive Republican. Yeah. And then there's Eric Trump, you know, the button-up Republican. Mm-hmm. So they were all on the campaign trail. You know, and then I can't imagine what prenup agreement is going to have to be revised to bring Melania back to the White House. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it just none of this seems vile to me. The only thing that's an interesting about this whole conversation is the impact that it could have during the midterms. Yeah, because I really don't think we're going to be having this conversation as we get past you know, maybe 23 or get into 2024. Yeah. Yeah. It's only important in how it's going to create a wedge within the Republican Party going into the midterms. What impact does Trump have on endorsements or what impact does his endorsements have on the races in Arizona, in Michigan, Mm -hmm. in Missouri, where he has yet to pick or endorse anyone for Senate there? Watch and see. He's going to endorse Greitens. Watch and and see. Yep. Yep. Greitens is the only person, the only Republican running in that race that Mm -hmm. the Democrats can beat. But he's also yeah. the most pro-Trump. He's also the most pro-Trump. Absolutely. And he has a very interesting resume. And I think that's another thing yeah. that the Republicans are doing. Yeah, very interesting resume, including tying up his girlfriend naked. 
uh, beating oh her, God. taking pictures of her, and then threatening to send them to the media if she ever told his wife that they had an affair. Oh, he's oh. in court yesterday with his wife over custody battle and other things. So, I mean, it's it's still an ongoing story. Oh, yeah, definitely. I want to add, too, that um, uh, just as we were starting the show uh, less than two hours ago, the jury in the Steve Bannon trial mm. um, went into deliberations. Closing arguments were this morning. Uh, Bannon's attorney asked the jury not to hold Bannon's uh, personal politics against him. Uh, The Mm -hmm. fact that he uh, helped to create the Donald Trump phenomenon. Uh, Mm -hmm. But this is a misdemeanor. Uh, He's not going to go to jail. Even if he does go to jail, it's going to be for, you know, a week. Does any of this really matter? I don't think so. Steve Bannon. I don't think so either. I don't think he cares. I don't don't think think he cares. cares. I don't think people care. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I don't think people care either. I think the only thing that makes him interesting is he really kind of intimated on his podcast, you know, what Trump was going to do on January 6th. Yeah. He's going to deny loss. He's not going anywhere. Mm. You know, this is his last term, so he doesn't care. So it was just kind of a foreshadowing of what was going to happen. Hey, I want to switch. That's what makes him interesting. I want to switch over to uh, to the Michigan governor's race. Uh The Republicans have five serious candidates running for governor of Michigan right now. Um, They're trying hard to out conservative one another. And um, this is for the the pleasure of taking on Governor Gretchen Gretchen Whitmer, who is very popular and is is likely to win reelection. But what the Republicans are doing that's been a real surprise to me is trying to like to see who can be the most draconian on abortion. And now they're taking turns, making pledges to, to um, cut off all abortions for victims of rape or incest. How do you think this plays in Michigan? Michigan is very much like Pennsylvania in that, you know, you've got these liberal pockets in Detroit and Ann Arbor and the rest of the state is very, very conservative. Right now, also like Pennsylvania, uh, the uh, state legislature is controlled by Republicans. How do you think this plays out? Well, it makes the governor's race all the more important, doesn't it? Sure does. Because we got Michigan governor, we got Gretchen Whitmer up, and uh, you know the governors can overturn or veto a lot of what happens in the state houses. But I don't know this extreme take on abortion, I think it's problematic for Republicans, because when you look at the polling, most Republicans are in favor of some access to abortion up to about 15 weeks. Mm-hmm. More than 92% of abortions occur between, you know, before 15 weeks. So I think it's a safe place to be politically. I don't know how how successful uh, the real zealots are going to be um, that want no restrictions, that are willing to send an attorney general to charge doctors treating women for miscarriages. I mean, some of these stories that are coming out are just horrific. And it's just the beginning of a wave of more stories that we're going to hear about. And when you look at the map, you know, people having to travel across the Midwest to seek, uh, you know, health care is just, even children, it's just heartbreaking. And I just can't imagine 
maybe this is a more of a hope than analysis that an extreme um, Republican is going to be viable for very long in that environment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's something that will turn out votes, even with Republicans forcing them into a place where they would want more of an establishment Republican well, than an ultra conservative. $4,000 question right there. Really, yeah, real just, quickly before we go. Uh, tell us about the Secretary of State race in uh, Arizona and why this is so important. Okay, Secretary of State in Arizona, Michigan. Can we talk about her just for a brief moment before sure, we sure. leave Michigan? Secretary of State Christina Caramo, who was uh, endorsed by Trump, she is a you know stop the steal. The election was stolen, but you know some of her rhetoric is just really um, outrageous. I mean, she's calling the current Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson demonic, and you know Benson testified during the January six hearing some mm-hmm. time ago, and she was said that she was kind of scared. I mean, she was like. Scared to leave the house. I mean, right. there's all these protesters. And so Secretary of State, I mean, this is like, this is kind of one of those obscure jobs that don't get a lot of attention. Right, but, but, they, now, but they run the elections. But they run the elections. And now with, you know, the whole thing going on with the January 6th uh, trials, I mean, now this role is becoming increasingly more important. Right. Right. Real, real quickly. um, And Michelle just reminded me, Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's this policy of Democrats supporting um, the the most extreme pro-Trump Republicans in Republican primaries. And there's a report that came out that they've spent how many millions of dollars? It's an open secrets, Chris Secrets report. Yeah, it's forty four million dollars on advertising campaigns in five states. Uh, to boost the profile of far right candidates, and then they and then they complain that they don't have enough money to build um, new party structures or even nascent party structures in states that don't have a Democratic Party presence. Yeah, I just and then don't also understand say, the Democrats. Like, the solution to these things is is to just. I mean, I understand what they are trying to do, but man, it's a big risk that you are taking. Big, big and it, risk. You know, I think you could make the case that it confers some responsibility on the people who w- worked to help get these guys closer to office if they do get into mm-hmm. office and responsible yep. for what what they do when they're in there. That's right. That's right. Right. And some of the people that were, you know, architects of this thing are now saying, hey, wait a minute. Now with Trump, we don't want to be doing this anymore. David Axelrod is like sounding the yeah. alarm. He said, like, stay out of this, you know? Yeah, they don't exactly. seem to be able to pivot very fast. No, you know what I mean? No, like, they, they don't, don't seem to be able it's to like change tactics. When yeah. They just can't, can't switch directions. Yeah. Ray Valencia, stay on the line. Ray is a Sputnik News analyst and the producer of this show. And because it is Friday, it's time for News of the Weird. Yay. So I'm going to start. You're just going to go straight in? We don't need a break. I'm going to go straight in. Get weird with us, I thought of you. As soon as I saw this article, I thought of you. (laughs) Oh, I can't wait. I hope you haven't read it yet. Okay. No, I don't think so. Okay. We're going to start today in Colorado. All right. The trail to the top of Pikes Peak in Colorado is 13 miles long. Okay. I think I might've seen this. Don't tell me about it. And the peak itself tops out at more than 14,000 feet. It's right. a serious mountain. Yeah. Making it a challenging hike for anyone. Mm-hmm. I couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. But for a guy named Bob Salem, who's 53 years old, the journey is oddly complicated. Mm-hmm. He has been pushing a peanut to the top of the mountain mm-hmm. with his nose. Mm-hmm. As crazy as this sounds, he created this customized headgear out of his CPAP 
machine um, headgear, right? And he put a he he glued a black plastic serving spoon mm-hmm. on the end of the CPAP machine on his nose, and he says, "Quote: Basically, I'm just doing a low crawl. I mean, there's not really much to it, but to just keep flicking your head." <laughs> As crazy Ain't as this sounds, yep. mm-hmm. he is not the first person to push a peanut to the top of the mountain. Yes. It was done uh, in the early part of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. He succeeded. Mm-hmm. He finished this a couple of days ago, five days ago. It took him five days. I'm really waiting here. I'm waiting for the uh, the traditionalists, the peanut pushing traditionalists to pipe up and say, you're not allowed to put something on the end of your nose. You have to just shred your nose pushing that peanut, uh, peanut up the mountain. Just, you know, turn it into ground hamburger on your face, pushing yeah. it against rocks for seven days. Because they'll say it's not the no- his nose that pushed the peanut to yes. the top. The, yes. It's the spoon. I mean, I stand with it. That's fine. It's I don't you could just hike to the top of the mountain. Well, and, and what he had was there was a buddy of his who walked behind him the whole time with a backpack that included a snowsuit, which he had to put on at night because even in July, it's really cold up there. Yep. And yep. so he would push on his hands and knees. He would push the peanut up the mountain. And then when the sun went down, he would stop and put his uh, snowsuit on and sleep right there next to the trail. Just. I I have done some long hikes in my life. I hiked the Pacific Crest Trail, right? And it's hard. It's very hard to do that. Every day it's hard. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to walk 20 or 30 miles a day. Yeah. Uh, but Boy. there are people who, in the midst of it, will want to go and do other additional things. Like, uh, well, let's also go hike up that peak over there. Or like, what? let's do this other. Yeah. Or let's, like, make it a challenge. Let's do, see, you know what I mean? Let's see if we can do Oregon in a, in a week or or whatever. And you'll, you'll. You'll make that very sound at them. What? And they'll go, no, no, no. It's type two fun. And you go, no, it's no, this is already type two fun. Yeah. Right. I already it's everything already hurts. Why do you want to put an additional hard thing on top of it? But hey, that's cool. People do good. Go do weird stuff. People. I love it. It's great. You know, in 1990, don't ask me to do it. I'm, I'm not going to. In 1993, I tried to climb to the top of Mount Sinai mm-hmm. and I, I made it about three quarters of the way I, and I couldn't finish it. So mm-hmm. I, I turned back. And two friends of mine that I was hiking with mocked me mercilessly. Eh, what's the matter, fatso? You turn can't back make... and die on a mountain. Well, you know what I did? I started working out and working out and working out. I lost 20 pounds and I went again the next year and I made it all the way to the top. Woo-hoo! There you go. But I would not try to push a peanut to the top of that no. mountain with nah. my nose. No, no. But some, you know. It does take all kinds, and that's beautiful. So thank you. Thank you for that's thinking right. of me as people. <laughs> I thought you'd get a kick out hey, of it. Hey, somebody did something really dumb. Let's think of Michelle. How about this one? Okay. Lori Rosser, a man. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lori is a common uh, men's name in, in Wales. I read Little Lemon. Oh, uh, yeah. There you go. <laughs> Lori Rosser, 42, of Gorsine in Wales, was stopped while driving on the M4 highway, major highway in okay. the U.K., Uh, Because his van was uh, missing two of its tires. Okay, that sounds like a problem. Yes. Uh, Police said that he had driven more than 10 miles. What? Without tires. I have to imagine they were the back two, right? (laughs) You have to be, right? (laughs) Great, yeah. Um, He had an explanation. Mm -hmm. 
Well, first of all, they breathalyzed him. I'm unsurprisingly. Right? He tested a 0.16. Okay. Which is double the legal limit mm, for yeah. Okay. Uh but he said, no, 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 he's not drunk. He has COVID. And oh. he had COVID uh mind fog, mm-hmm. he said. That's why. He didn't realize his tires had fallen off. So um <laughs> Poor guy was banned from driving yeah. for 17 months and forced to pay a fine. Fair enough. Fair enough. Dragging, dragging your van behind you on no, <laughs> no actual tires. The sparks. No tires. Love it. I, have you been to Wales? Many times. I hear it's beautiful. I've looked over. It's amazing. I've been, I've been hiking in England and looked over the hills to Wales. My host mother, when, the first time I went to England, I, I spent a year there. My host mother was Welsh, mm. and um, and we used to go with some regularity. It was it was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a really lovely place. Beautiful people. Such a unique language. Very interesting traditions, like uh, visiting visiting your neighbors with the head of a horse on a stick. I hadn't celebrate heard that some one. holiday. Yeah, it's a, I can't remember the name of it. I could look it up right now, but uh, yeah, it's cool. it's a gnarly little Welsh holiday tradition. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my god. Um, let's see. Uh, maybe donuts don't sell so well in Arizona's extreme July heat. I'd eat a donut anytime. We had donut holes today. Which yeah, was I've really had nice. two. Oh, I missed out. Yeah. In, uh, in any case, one grocery <laughs> store chain figured out another use for donuts. Okay. Uh, Basha's, a grocery store chain based in Chandler, Arizona, assembled 14,400 donuts into a mosaic of the company's logo beautiful and that was enough to get them into the guinness book of world records for the largest ever donut mosaic 902 square feet i mean we the thing is we have to think of something that no one would ever consider doing and then do it and get in the record books yeah, let's over the weekend, John. Let's think about what There's we could be what we could do. That's yeah. uh, how much jelly can you bathe in? Exactly, you know, something like that. How many? You know, the, in the Greek press all the time, they're congratulating themselves over you know the the biggest block of feta cheese, yes. right? Or the longest <laughs> dance line running uncontested. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So there's got to be something for us. Hey, I have an update on a mystery. If you want one, yeah. Uh, the, remember we talked about those deaths in that South African club of, oh, yes. of young people, I think yes. from like 14 to was 21. Was it poison? Was it uh, carbon monoxide? I do not have the uh, resolution to it. Oh, they were, they were aged between 13 and 17. Uh, 21 teens died, but they have found methanol, traces of methanol in all of their blood. So the drinks were spiked. Well... It, methanol also arises, people, you know, you have methanol poisonings uh, in places where people are making their own alcohol, yes, homemade alcohol. That's so they what pop I was up thinking. in Russia pretty often. Yeah. Was, I think there were a few in India it relatively causes recently. blindness and death. Yeah. And, yeah. However, uh, they apparently are still determining if the levels of, if the level of chemicals that they have found in their blood was enough to kill them. Also, apparently, uh, it, it, it can be absorbed through the eyes, the skin, the lungs, Jeez. and the digestive system. And all the reports from inside that club were that people were saying, I smelled something, I thought it was pepper spray, whatever. Yeah. I mean, who knows? Who knows if that is just totally unrelated, if people were just panicking, or if, I don't know, there was some 
a homemade alcohol operation that went awry. Mm-hmm. But I really do want to find out the 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 end to this mystery because it well, is such a it's, it's, it's just a catastrophe. so catastrophe. It really is. Yeah, I've got one other story. Um, okay, it, you know I, I I wrote myself a note here too that it wouldn't be news of the weird without news about a pervert, right? There, there's like per, news them. of the perverted right. out there all over the place. Mm-hmm. This involves a former vicar. Oh, great. They're always the worst. You know, there's a there's a saying in Greek, um, son of the priest, grandson of the devil. Wow. Yeah, because the <laughs> priest's kids are always the worst ones in okay, the village. fair enough. Yeah. Right? You know, okay, go on. <laughs> I, I know one exception to that, but that proves the rule, as they say. So, <laughs> so there's a former vicar. 74-year-old man by the name of John Jeffs. Mm -hmm. He was found guilty last week Mm -hmm. in Northampton Magistrates Court after an incident that happened in September of 2020. A churchgoer at the Baptist Center in Middleton walked into the church, and Jeffs is standing there between two chairs wearing only ladies' stockings. Okay. And... The report says being intimate with a Hoover vacuum cleaner hose. Okay. What? Although Jeff saw the onlooker, he reportedly continued thrusting toward the the Hoover, which is known for its powerful suction. Okay. That seems dangerous. Dangerous, yeah. Especially yeah. if you're 74 years old. Yeah. Jeff's was fined about $1,000 and added to the sex offender registry and ordered to pay $240 to the person who witnessed the act. I mean, you know, if the door is closed, I don't really think, other than the risk you're running to your own body, you know, do whatever you want. If you want to, if you want to. But it's well, church, though. Wanna, it's church. Yeah, I mean, I'm not even that religious. You should be doing it at church. When, when I was in prison, I, every time I'd catch guys having sex in the chapel i'd be like take it outside yeah this is supposed to be god's house in here you know if you, ever go, to, if you ever go to temples in uh in taiwan if you go to like uh taoist temples or whatever you got old folks playing dominoes outside oh. there's like a whole food court inside it's it's really nice because it's just all the sort of day-to-day human life happening in there and there's not See, really much nice, of a division actually. between the sacred and profane which i think is lovely uh well thank you john for for ending it on that level guys be careful of your appliances treat them with some respect out there over the weekend That's right. uh we're gonna say goodbye i want to say thanks to all of our guests uh thanks to ray valencia for joining us for the politics discussion and on behalf of john kiriaku and myself michelle witty thanks to you for listening we'll see you on monday have a great weekend <laughs>